Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. Now you might be thinking, who's Waldy? Well, that's me, Valdemar Januszczak, art critic of the Sunday Times. But as no one can say, Valdemar Januszczak, I've become Waldy. But what about Bendy? Well, that's another story. Trying to describe Bendy is like trying to describe the cosmos. He's everywhere. He's everything. He's all around us and above us. He's an art historian, an art dealer. He's a connoisseur. And as we've recently found out, he's a farmer. And he's always on the telly. So is there anything he isn't? Well, let's ask him. Bendor, Bendy, Grosvenor, what are you not? I'm not on the telly this week, Weldy. I've I've disappeared down the black hole of the Weldy cosmos. Do you know you know why? No, tell me. So Britain's Last Masterpiece has been repeated on BBC Four for the last few weeks. We've, they've been going through series two, of which there were four programmes. And it's brilliant, by the way, listeners, brilliant. Very sweet of you to say. So they put the first three on Monday at eight o'clock. Um, and last this Monday, we were supposed to have the last episode. But do you know what was on instead? I can't think what it might be. What it was, was it? you. <laughs> <laughs> you bumped our last programme. <laughs> That's a first, then, isn't it? It's a first. It's a first. <laughs> I got in in front of Bendy. Oh, do you know, Bendy? One of the reasons I love talking to you. You know what? I love your voice. It's like a cup of hot chocolate on a cold Scottish morning. So warm, so deep. Oh, I do love it. But fortunately, there's going to be plenty of opportunity to listen to it on this podcast because we've got loads of good stuff coming up. And all the pictures we talk about, everything in this podcast, it's all illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. You can even buy your Christmas presents there. Everything you want. But first, it's that moment that art lovers cling to and wait for. That moment when we look carefully at the calendar. Dodgy, dodgy, dodgy. Anniversary. Ah, thank you, Mozart. I do love that jingle. Actually, Bendy, the dodgy anniversary this week isn't that dodgy. I mean, compared with some of the ones we've had on here, it's nearly genuine. Mm -hmm. Because did you know that 2020 is the 200th anniversary of the accession to the British throne of George IV? George IV became king in 1820. Now, we all know what he was like. You know, we've seen those Rowlandson cartoons, haven't we? He liked drinking. He, he liked eating. Uh, he liked a bit of rumpy-pumpy. Well, he liked a lot of rumpy-pumpy. But the best thing about him, I think, was that he loved art. There's a show that's just opened at the Queen's Gallery about the paintings that uh, usually hang at Buckingham Palace. And most of what's there was bought by George IV. So I think we should celebrate him, Bendy, his accession to the throne and the royal collection, that wonderful art which the Queen owns. I mean, it's a treasure trove, isn't it? The royal collection is just, there are not enough superlatives in my view. Um, it's a unique collection in the world. We're so lucky to have it in this country. It's full of amazing pictures. And for my money, they always put on the best exhibitions these days too, in places like the Queen's Gallery. The catalogues that you get in a royal collection exhibition are 
absolutely unsurpassed. They're full of detailed extra new scholarship and lovely illustrations and fascinating facts. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the Royal Collection. And I'm not just saying that because I've always had um, a strange fantasy of one day ending up as the the queen surveyor of pictures because uh -huh. I quite like the idea of being uh -huh. surveyor of pictures. No, uh -huh. I, I genuinely love everything the Royal Collection does. And you're quite right to highlight the central role in that of King George IV. I wonder if we should talk about the, the perhaps unfortunate parallel, though, between monarchs who are great art collectors uh, and not necessarily such good monarchs, because I think probably in the company with George IV of being the, our greatest art collecting king in his country was, of course, Charles I, and, and he lost his head. It's true, isn't it? I mean, the two, well, there have been two great royal collectors, haven't there, in Britain, as you say, Charles I and George IV, and both of them were lousy kings. Um, and indeed, I think the, their love of art played an important role, I was going to say downfall, it's not quite true of George IV, I think it's certainly true of Charles I, that, that at least it poisoned people's attitudes towards yes. them. I mean, yeah. this country just doesn't like kings and queens that love art. They, they hold it against them, they, they, they don't like people that spend lavish amounts of money on building things, do they, in castles and palaces. And I mean, George IV, you know, he rebuilt Buckingham Palace, he, he rebuilt Windsor Castle. Charles I, I mean, God, there was that show at the Royal Academy last year, a couple of years ago, about the collection that he built up. I mean, it was astonishing, wasn't it, Bendy? Mm amazing and the money he spent on bringing you know whole boatloads of pictures over from italy the the celebrated mantua collection and so on was quite extraordinary and i think you're absolutely right to say that it did pollute minds against him i think it's very interesting that one of the the first things the cromwellian interregnum did after they cut charles's head off was flog his art collection um, they couldn't get it out the door quick enough and and sometimes at really uh, crazy low prices as well I know if they hadn't done that, if you think of the things that would have been here, I mean, I know we've got tons already, yes. but I mean, if you go around the Prado and basically 50% of it would have been yeah. in England, you know, all yeah. those Titians, they were all here, um, all those Rubenses, and they were all sold off by, by the Cromwellians. And it, it's lingered, you know, I mean, I know when I started writing about art, one of the things people always used to tell me, you know, if, I, if you go into a sort of contemporary art gallery, people would say, oh, you know, the trouble with the, with the British is they don't really like art. You know, they like literature. They like Jane Austen, but they don't really like painting. I hate to say this, but I think there's a germ of truth to that, you know. Mm. I mean, it's just not built into us. I think perhaps some of it's to do with the fact that a lot of art is Catholic. A lot of old master art has a Catholic underpinning. Yes. And there was a, a prejudice against that here. Because, I mean, you know, if we're talking about monarchs who supported art, I mean, the first one we should be really talking about is, is Henry VIII, isn't it? I mean, because it was Henry VIII who, in a way, kick-started um, the great art tradition in Britain by bringing over Holbein, wasn't it? Indeed. Uh, but then he also um, managed to light the fire that destroyed so much of what had gone before, of course, with his great dissolution of the monasteries and the iconoclasm that resulted. I think I'm always like to wave a flag for Henry VIII's dad, Henry VII, because I think actually he was the first monarch who really grasped the importance or the value, I should say, of art in terms of enhancing royal glory and thus royal power. Um, he was a very clever fellow, Henry VII, and when he took the throne with a very, very weak claim, it has to be said, in 1485, one of the ways he realised that he could cement his authority, do you know this? No. He was the first monarch to put a profile portrait, an accurate portrait of his own head on the coinage. So before then, if you look at any coinage from, you know, the reign of uh, Henry VI backwards, English monarchs had always been represented by a generic face with a crown on. 
and Henry VII, realizing he had a weak claim, the best, one of the best ways to make sure everybody in the country knew who this new king was and what he looked like was to put his own face on it. And that was quite a shrewd move. And of course, it's been happening ever since. And interesting, if you look at a 20p piece in your pocket, you'll see another one of his artistic innovations, which of course is the Tudor Rose, which united the, the houses of York and Lancaster. So you're right to highlight Henry VIII, but I also think Henry VII plays a, a very crucial role in starting that process. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? This idea of putting your face out there. I mean, it's what the Romans did to, to as it were, outline the edges of their empire. I mean, all those busts of Julius Caesar and um, Marcus Aurelius and all those. I mean, they're, they're not there because they're meant to be likenesses. They're there as kind of markers of power, aren't they? That's why yes. they all look exactly the same. All the Julius Caesars look exactly the same. And the same thing happens with stamps, with coins. But I mean, the invention of the Tudor Rose was interesting because that's like a, a, a symbolic thing, isn't it? I mean, suddenly you've got a face and a symbol to go with it. Yeah. But what, what it all underlines is, is the importance of the image, isn't it? I mean, the, the way that the visuals have been used to cement identities. And if, if I can go back to Henry VIII, you see, the thing about him is, let's face it, if Holbein had not basically invented Henry VIII, you know, with that famous image of him, would we be talking about him as much as we do? Would Wolf Hall have been written? Would we be obsessed with the Tudors in the way we are? If we didn't have this incredibly dynamic and clear image of, of bluff King Howe standing there with his legs apart and his hands behind his belt and all that, you know, Holbein invented the Tudor image, didn't he? Yes, he invented our public conception of Henry VIII with arms akimbo, this huge man um, striding across the frame. Slightly reminds me of you sometimes, Valdi, in, in your shows. As you, oh, yours. As you, <laughs> you know how to hurt a man, don't you? Dagger <laughs> I mean, in the back there, Ben. I mean that in an affectionate way. You know, we can't, we can't take our eyes off you, just as with Holbein's Henry VIII. Um, but of course, uh, Charles I did, uh, tried the same trick with Van Dyck. He brought, uh, he absolutely sought out Van Dyck specifically to come and try and turn him into a, a kingly person that he was not in real life. And Van Dyck painted some lovely portraits, but uh, the trick did not work, of course. But it's a transformation. It's magic, isn't it? I mean, what Van Dyck did with Charles I is just magic. I mean, this small, stuttery, nervous little man becomes this glorious-looking sort of Renaissance figure. With Van, I mean, Van Dyck was the greatest flatterer who's, who's ever arrived on these shores. I wish he'd paint me sometimes. I'm sure he'd make me look, you know, two stone lighter and a lot taller. <laughs> but um, it's this idea of the royal image. It's it's this same thing, isn't it? I know. You know, when Prince William started to study art history at Edinburgh, I remember researching this. Somebody asked me to write an article about it. And, um, you know, I was thrilled that he was doing art history. And yeah, that's where he met Kate, wasn't it? Art doing yeah. art history. But I think the thing he studied to begin with, and perhaps somebody from the, uh, the Royal Palaces may write in to correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> on this, but I think he, he studied the creation of the royal image by Van Dyck under Charles I. It was very, very topic. I think that was like the the subject of his first essay as an art historian. Um, and it is so important. I mean, if we jump forward again to George IV, I mean, if all those cartoons hadn't been done of George IV, you know, if Rowlandson hadn't shown him to be this porky bloke with gout who's always got his foot up and all that, <laughs> you know, we might have valued him not for his louche lifestyle, but, but for his art collecting, which, as I said, is featured very prominently at this show at the moment at the Royal Collection. So this image-making thing, you know, art has played such an important role in British history, hasn't it? And particularly at the Royal Collection. Yes, I'd love to read um, William's, William's treatise. That's, uh, that's quite an insight. Imagine um, having grown up amongst all those pictures and then 
coming to some conclusions about them. I wonder who will paint William one day as king. But you, I'm very jealous of you having been to that exhibition. I'm, I'm, if I have one beef against the Royal Collection today, the present exhibition at the Queen's Gallery has slightly rekindled it. Um, because I understand that that show, which consists of, of amazing masterpieces from Buckingham Palace, which are there temporarily while the palace is being uh, refurbished, um, is not coming to Scotland, as most Queen's Gallery exhibitions tend to do. And that's something I, I, that upsets me about the Royal Collection these days is that up here in Scotland, we, get, we do slightly get the rough end of the deal with the Royal Collection. Um, did you know well, how many Rembrandts the Queen has? Uh, I think she has three. She has seven. And do you know how many are on long-term display in Scotland? Uh, uh, Zero. Zero. She has 29 Van Dykes at zero in Scotland. And 52 Canalettos, none of those in Scotland. Yes. So I I hope that we can, I think, because it it taps into one of my sort of uh, crusading things, is that in this country we we need a massive art redistribution, I think, because Mm -hmm. these days with, with so many... Uh, galleries and regional galleries are really suffering, particularly as a result of the pandemic and years of, of cuts to funding. I think it's such a shame. I think it's absolute scandal, in fact, that so much of our great art is basically uh, sitting either in uh, museums, storerooms, or even palaces in and around London. I think we really need to shake things up a bit. And, and you guys down there in London, you you have everything. and you, You've got to stop being so grippy with all these masterpieces. Have you been in Buckingham Palace, Bendor? Do you know, I, I, I used to work there, actually. Oh, God. I should have known. <laughs> you, you were the king in waiting. What, what did you do? You were the royal footman for art. What, what were you? <laughs> no, I used to take people around on summer tours. It was a student job I had years ago. It was great uh, fun. <laughs> I've actually been in there myself once um, uh, and met uh, Her Majesty the Queen and Prince Philip. Oh, really? Was that for your knighthood that you're so modest about? You never, you, you've never disclosed publicly. I am going to turn down a knighthood, uh, should I ever be offered one. And I'm going to be living hope just so I can turn it down. But that, uh, <laughs> yes, I can't really see it happening. Uh, not Certainly not after you, you've become Baron Bendy of Loch Ness <laughs> or whatever it is you're going to be. Um, when I was at Channel 4, I, I actually made the very first high-definition art series in Britain. Mm-hmm. And it was all about the Royal Collection. It was presented by Christopher Lloyd, who was the previous surveyor of the Queen's pictures, the job mm. that you're going to get uh, in a couple of years' time, Bendy, Indeed, or yes. vote Bendy. <laughs> and as a sort of thank you, uh, Michael Grade, who was the head of Channel 4, and I were invited for tea with Her Majesty. Wow, um, how lovely. So, we, so we went to, to Buckingham Palace, and uh, there are two things, are, well, three things I remember really well. One, the carpet was wet. So there's a big red carpet down the middle. And obviously, you know, and I can see why they're having to rebuild it. You know, the, the plumbing or there's not a very good foundation to it or something was wrong, but the carpet was squelching. You walk down there and it was squelch, squelch, squelch. The other thing was Her Majesty's... Maybe the corgis had been there just before you. No, no, there's far too much water for that. It was, it was a genuine <laughs> seeping up from the ground. Um, the Queen, the Queen's complexion. Her Majesty has the most perfect complexion. And, and I looked at it and I just couldn't work out how someone could have such a beautiful porcelain face. It was like a piece of mice and glorious. Mm. And the mm. third thing I noticed was that Prince Philip was a lot shorter than I thought. You know, when you see Prince Philip on television, he always looks six foot three or something. Yes, yes. Well, he's not. I mean, he, he's not much bigger than me. He might be my height, you know. So uh, that's the image as well, the power of the image. So I have these wonderful memories of, uh, of Buckingham Palace. Um, and I did enjoy going there. They always say the Queen's not interested in art, actually, but I don't think that's right. Did she talk to you about the programme? She did. She told a fascinating story, which is actually in, in the series that we made. Her wedding dress when she married um, Prince Philip 
was based on a painting by Turbork that's in the Royal Collection. So there was a painting by Turbork of a young Dutch woman mm-hmm. um, wearing this white silk dress, and it's beautiful. When she was growing up, this Turbork painting hung in her bedroom, oh. and it sort of haunted her. And when it came to marrying Philip, um, she decided to have her wedding dress modelled on the Turbork, and that's oh, a story yeah. she tells in the film. Oh, so, oh art, it's the universal language, isn't it, Bendor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But enough of this high-class stuff. It's time to get some mud on our shoes again. And not just mud, there's lots of other stuff as well deposited on the ground where we're going next. Ah, smell that fertile air, art lovers. Fill your lungs with it, because we're back at Bendor's farm to continue our important investigation of the animal in art. We've done donkeys, fish, we've done cats, and this week we're doing sheep. Now, I've democratically selected the five best artworks I can think of that feature sheep, and I've ranked them according to their importance. So, Bendor, at number five, we have... Picasso's marvellous 1943 sculpture called Man with Sheep. You love it, don't you? Uh, oh, I agree it should be in fifth place. I've, I've never seen it, so I'm, I mustn't judge it too harshly. I've only seen it from the photos. It didn't strike me as Picasso's finest work, I should say. I suppose the sheep's not too bad, but it looks like it's about to fall over this thing. It doesn't look very stable at all. I think it isn't very stable, and one of the reasons for that is because, look at the date it was made. 1943. What was happening in 1943, Bendor? Picasso was in Paris, I think, wasn't he? Which was occupied by the Germans. It was occupied by the Germans. There was a shortage of pretty much everything. And there was this conflict going on around him that he felt obliged to address in his art. I mean, sometimes very tangentially, but always you feel the spirit of the Second World War is in the work. Mm -hmm. It's certainly in Man with Sheep. So he made it in his studio, um, and it's bigger than life-size. It's seven foot tall. And he, he had an armature made and then plastered it with very loose plaster and then just about got it cast in bronze in time to make it a sculpture before it all fell off. Oh. Um, but it was pretty controversial from the start because no one was quite sure what it was meant to represent, right? Okay, so it's a man holding a sheep, right? Mm-hmm. But the sheep looks very uncomfortable. Have you had a look at the, the sheep itself yet, Bendy? He definitely wants to wriggle away. It's wriggling. He's sort of holding it by the feet, isn't he? Yeah. And yet, so he's not a handsome bloke either, is he? I just see his face. He's yes. sort of bald and old. Mm-hmm. It's a mismatch. And it's inspired, people say, you know, there's a very famous early Christian image of the Good Shepherd. Christ is the Good Shepherd. Have you seen yes. those images? Yes, yes. You know, the Vatican Museum's got a couple. And it's a bloke, a young man, usually carrying a sheep on his shoulders. Uh-huh. And it's this whole idea of salvation. Christ yeah. is the shepherd of men. So people always understand Picasso's Man with Sheep as a version of that. And it is, of course. But I remember, see, I, I went round um, the south of France with um, Sir John Richardson, who was Picasso's biographer. We, we were making a series about him. And Richardson took me to Valoris, where there's a bronze cast of this. Picasso gave it to the town when they gave him the freedom of Valoris. And it's standing there in the centre of the town in front of the church. And it was Richardson who explained to me that Picasso's ambitions for this sculpture were very varied. I mean, he's not the sort of guy to do Christ as a good shepherd. It's going to be more complex than that. And I think that's why the sheep is very uncomfortable. It's been grabbed by the legs. It's almost being forced into safety. The man is not a heroic figure. He's a blobby figure. 
it's just a wonderfully gritty, insoluble work of art. And one of the things I really like about Picasso is that he's always open-ended. There's never a finite meaning to him. You, know, you and I can argue forever about what this thing might mean. But that sort of edginess, that lack of a final meaning, is I think one of the legacies of the Second World War. I think the spirit of the times is in it, this uncomfortable sort of grating quality almost. And that's why I've put it there. I mean, sheep are usually pretty and sweet and lovable, but this one, it's uncomfortable. It might be being carried off to slaughter or something. Mm. There's definitely something else going on with it. That's why I've picked it. Okay, well, I'm glad you like it. Actually, I've always been very interested in Richardson. He's the most extraordinary character. What, what was he like to me? I heard that his grandfather was born during the reign of George III. That's something that's always just blown me away. The fact that you can be so close to such distant generations. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. I mean, he was a fantastic name dropper. He didn't mention George III. Um, <laughs> he mentioned pretty much everybody else he's ever met. I mean, he used to live next door to Mick Jagger in the south of France. And then he knew everybody in New York. I mean, literally everybody. He was a wonderful bloke. We should do a special program on John Richardson because I am full of stories about him. But I mean, it would take me far too long to do them now. Okay. So, so listeners, wait in hope and anticipation. Once I get going on John Richardson, I'll never stop. But of course, he was the great biographer of Picasso. And I think his books about Picasso are the greatest books about Picasso that have been written and that ever will be written. But we can't spend the whole program talking about Picasso, however much I'd like to. So we're going to move on to number four, Bendor. What do you think number four is? Um, I'm going to go for the Hearst sheep. The Hearst sheep. Well, it's not in my list, but but you know we're democratic here. We have to listen to to what you say. It's not my list at number four. It's it's in my list. It's number two. But there you go. Okay. Um, what have we got? It's called Away from the Flock. It was made in uh, 1994, and it's a sheep in a box of formaldehyde. So it's the same period, roughly, as the, the famous Damon Hearst shark except that it's a sheep and it's a fluffy bar lamb in this box and it's called away from the flock. Isn't it marvellous, Bendor? Oh, I can't stand this thing. I have seen this. It's really, really so dull. I had a look at Tate's website, the catalogue description of it. Can I, can I read you a line? It says, away from the flock is a floor-based sculpture, which I think means it's on the floor, uh, consisting of a glass wall tank filled with formaldehyde solution in which a dead sheep is fixed so that it appears to be alive and caught in movement. But no, it's bloody not alive. It's so obviously dead. It so obviously doesn't look like it's either alive or moving. Um, so, Bender, uh, Bender, what, what are you, you criticising the Tate's description or the sculpture here? Well, no, give me a chance. I'll, I'll do both if you give me, <laughs> give me enough time. No, because uh, I just think, I think this artwork is one of those things where, you know, we want to transpose all sorts of arty guff onto it and that for me reveals both Damien Hirst's genius and also his emptiness as an artist because I think he was quite complicit in this I mean for me I don't I don't find it a very original thing I mean uh, Damien Hirst's repast to people who who always used to say well you know spots or shark in a tank uh, I could have done that he always very cleverly I thought said well you didn't and I suppose there's a novelty in the shark in a tank, but I think when it gets to this sort of endless series of other animals, it, it seems to me just to be actually something of a ripoff of um, Jeff Koons started playing around with with things floating in tanks like this. He did basketballs and baseballs in the 1980s, didn't he? And I think with Jeff Koons, you, you always get that slight sense that he's just sitting back laughing at us all, taking these things seriously. I'm not sure Damien Hurst is is finding the joke here at all. I think he wants us to take it seriously, but there's nothing serious to take here. 
this is this is just it's it's an empty artwork uh it is it's absolutely typical of the 1990s you know when it was all about the here and now and the big pr hit and the, and the big bangs and the big bucks and i think one of the legacies of of artworks like this is the fact that it's already falling apart this sheep at tate is the is the one where the tank started leaking formaldehyde fumes isn't it i don't know yeah and of course we know that the shark had to be replaced because that started yes. rotting um and i think in the, uh, the early days of formaldehyde uh, pieces yes yeah but it just reflects the fact that for me works like this are entirely selfish because who does an artist make an artwork for is it for the audience both here and in the future or is it for themselves and I think with Hearst, works like this reflect the fact that it's just for himself. He just, he, he very cleverly wanted to take the reputational hit and the check. And I think he's now uh, sold it. He's laughing all the way to the bank and good for him. But we're left with this empty artwork, which is falling apart before our very eyes. And I don't think it's going to stand the test of time. So I wouldn't have put it in my list at all. Bravo, Bendor. I think you've just broken the world record for being wrong um, the most <laughs> amount of times. <laughs> in in a three-minute rant. My word. Okay, Away from the Flock is a wonderful piece of British 1990s art. And Damien Hirst started out as a genuinely exciting artist. Now, I remember really clearly, I mean really clearly, when nobody in Britain liked contemporary art. I mean, there was an infamous incident involving a set of bricks by Carl Andre, which everybody started guffawing at and laughing at and mocking and it was on the front page of the sun even you know isn't art stupid and nobody liked it you know you put up a sign outside a contemporary art gallery in the 1980s and people would have gone in the other direction but then along came Damien Hirst and he spoke a language of art that communicated with people in a different way now of course people were shocked by it a lot of people were appalled by it but it, when you looked at his work and when you visited his work for the first time I must say, it was some of the most exciting art I'd ever seen. I mean, there's a piece he did called Mother and Calf Divided, which is a cow in formaldehyde, right? Two cows, a, cow, a mother and a calf. And it was cut right down the middle in two boxes, and you walk down the middle. So you're walking down the middle of the inside of a cow. It was very dramatic. It was unquestionably the taking of sculpture in a new direction. And what was also absolutely true about it was that it referred to traditions of keeping animals stored in formaldehyde i.e things you might find in a natural history museum taxidermy these displays you get in places you know sad tragic displays even places like auschwitz even has got these glass cases full of stuff that looks as if it's there to remember a time in the past all this echoes through these damien hurst pieces the early ones which are really good now this particular one um, when I was doing the Turner Prize on Channel 4, one of the things I wanted Channel 4 to do was to buy artworks from the winning artists. And stupidly, they never did it. Otherwise, they'd, they'd be millionaires now. Um, but this was one of the pieces that we showed at Channel 4 in the cafeteria. This was in the cafeteria at Channel 4. People came to look at it to try and get a sense of Damien Hirst. And everybody loved it. They loved it. And I'll tell you why they loved it. First of all, because it isn't just a dead sheep in a box, as you so caustically put it it's a fluffy bar lamb suspended magically in blue liquid as an object it's actually really rather gorgeous and miraculous and it doesn't look dead it looks somehow magically preserved and of course 
Away from the flock is a very meaningful title. Sheep are normally found in big flocks. They usually have lots of buddies around them. This one's on its own. It's lonely and trembly. It's a sad little bar lamb. And there's a great sentimental impact to that. And, you know, this was a, a new way of doing sculpture. It was a new type of sculpture for a new age. It was a very moving thing. And Damien Hirst's early work was really, really interesting. And I will defend him till I die. And it's a shame that these days everybody's taking pot shots at him all the time. They're forgetting just what a lot... I mean, who changed art in Britain? Not many people, but I tell you what, Damien Hirst was one of them. Okay. Well, I'm glad it does it for you. Um... Uh, you have to take it from me as uh, a farmer who's got... I can, I can see sheep out of the window at the moment. And yeah, but you're not putting you, them in a glass box and yeah, framing them, are you? This thing does not look alive. I can tell you that. Bendor, it really doesn't. I mean, Bendor, the, the Impressionists saw trees outside the window and painted them. Does that mean that their trees are invalid because they existed outside the window? What point no, are you trying to make? No, no. I'm just rebutting your point where you say you think this sheep looks alive. That's a that's a real townies view of, of what a live sheep should look like. <laughs> well, it hasn't got a dirty bottom or anything like that. I agree with you. No, it's a symbolic sheep. You know, sheep are symbolic. That's one of the things that we're talking about here. And this whole list is full of symbolic sheep. That's what we're talking about. And the single sheep, the little bar lamb separated from the flock has a symbolic meaning. It's sentimental. It's rather lovely. And it's, it's actually a wonderful thing. Just in purely aesthetic terms, this white creature in this bluish formaldehyde with a white frame around it is really good but don't go up too close to it because if you breathe in the fumes too much you'll be very sick don't be silly Bendor. come on <laughs> let's, let's let's move on before before you show yourself up come on <laughs> number three now for number three we've actually gone back to the royal collection and indeed we've gone back to the queen's gallery because this picture is actually on show right now in the show of treasures from buckingham palace and it's by guido cagnacci it's a painting called Jacob Peeling the Rods, a Baroque painting from 1640. It's hanging right now at the Queen's Gallery. What do you think of it? Um, I struggle to see why you chose this picture. I was researching it and trying to get my head around the bizarre Old Testament story that it relates to, which is something about uh, Jacob, I think, trying to uh, genetically modify some sheep that do or don't have spots on by putting certain twigs in their drinking trough. Which exactly. is just, it's so far out there in Old Testament, isn't it? But then... I There's thought it would appeal the... to you, the farmer in you. See, this is this is your life in a frame, isn't it? I mean, it's a, that's why we chose it. Well, I was looking for the sheep in it, which are very small in the background. And am I right in thinking you chose this painting because there's a sheep doing something that looks quite like mating in the background? Is that why you chose it? It's not why I chose it, but oh. they are mating. And mating is, is an issue here, yes. So this is the most beautifully painted shagging sheep in art history. Is, is that where we're going? No, it's not that. It's to do with the symbolism. Now, you see, I like Guido Cagnacci. I think he's one of the underrated masters of the Baroque. Um, and people have started to understand him and know him a bit recently. But for 400 years, he was basically forgotten. But he's got this picture which hangs in the Royal Collection in Buckingham Palace above the fireplace. Uh, and we can see it now really well in the show, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you say it's a crazy story. It is a crazy story. It's absolutely a crazy story. So Jacob is basically... Uh, for complicated reasons, he has to produce some spotted sheep. Otherwise, he can't marry Rachel. That's the girl on the right that he's in love with. Um, instead, he's stuck with Leah, who's the girl on the left, right, who's Rachel's sister. In those days, a bloke could marry two sisters, at least in the Bible they could. 
So to get out of this and to be able to marry Rachel, he has to become successful as a sheep breeder of speckled or dotty sheep. So according to some kind of weird natural magic, this stick that he's peeling in front of him, right? If he cuts the bark off and creates the white patches on it, rings of white, this white black effect on the stick, and then sticks the stick in the water when the sheep are drinking from it, the sheep will be inspired to mate and to produce black and white speckled sheep. I mean, people say the Bible shouldn't be taken literally. How can they say that? How can they say that when this story is out there? And Jacob is, of course, the founder of Israel. It's it's crazy, isn't it? It's a crazy story, but but it's just such an interesting picture. You see, once you know what's going on here, I mean, this is as unusual a religious image as you'll ever see, isn't it? Yes, uh, it's very eccentric. I'm glad you like Kenya. He's, I think, probably deserves his relative obscurity, in my opinion, um, especially if we're judging him on his sheep painting abilities. But it's a very fine stick uh, that Jacob is peeling. He's painted a good stick. So that's that's what we can say for it, I suppose. Okay, I was going around this collection with the current keeper of the Queen's pictures, Desmond Shaw Taylor, right? Oh, yes, fine gentleman. A very fine gentleman and you know when you get the job you know you'll, you'll be able to to write um, wonderful things about your predecessor desmond now tell me if you think he's right right he reckons that there is a sexual pun in this picture because the way that uh jacob is holding the stick and the way that he's looking up at rachel implies uh, a desire for well you can see what it what i'm getting at can't you H have a look what do you think Ah, hence the shagging sheep in the background. Well, yes, I suppose yes. it all makes sense, doesn't it? Um, so like all of these stories, it's really not about the Old Testament tale. It's about sex and lust, isn't it? Well, the um, thing is that Leah, who is the one whom he did marry to begin with, but he was really in love with Rachel Jacob, according to the Bible, um, Rachel could not conceive children. I mean, I think he was 77 or something, Jacob. He doesn't look 77 in this, does he? But he was 77 when he met um, this family and the two sisters. And it took him a long time to conceive children with Rachel when he finally got round to marrying her as well. Mm -hmm. So there's that going on here, I think. I think there is indeed an indication of the difficulty that he was having for children. Yes, well, I think uh, Desmond has demonstrated just the amount of perspicacious um, analysis that you need to be surveyor of the Royal Collection <laughs> by his shrewd analysis of this painting. And I have demonstrated absolutely why I'll never even be a junior curator there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no i want to see you in that position i suppose you'll get a little sort of crown to go with it oh. it's all about the sex your majesty <laughs> <laughs> anyway before we all both get our heads cut off we must move on very very briskly to a painting that i think we all love don't we and that is by holman hunt um, and it's called our english coast it was painted in 1852 and in my view it's pretty much the best pre-raphaelite picture there is what do you think now these are sheep, Wildy. You've really picked some good sheep here. Um, they look just like the ones outside our window here. Um, they're all woolly and cuddly. Uh, these ones are, are quite a bit cleaner, I have to say, than the ones we've got here, who are looking a little bit muddy and wintered already. But it's it's a very poignant picture, I think, because the sheep are poised on the edge of a cliff. They've strayed, obviously. Uh, there's no shepherd in sight. Um, there's a moment of a jeopardy and danger. One of them is already uh, looking very perilously close falling down the edge and it just has that wonderful attention to detail that you've got with the best uh, pre-raphaelite painters 
um, the light is lovely, um, all the flowers are beautifully painted, and of course, uh, if, you, if you like your pictures to be full of religious meaning, as I know you do, uh, then this one has it in space, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you can't have sheep in any painting, really, without there being some possibility of a religious meaning. I mean, that's right. It's to do with um, the end of everything, isn't it? Getting to the edge and falling over. Christ, the supposed good shepherd, um, he will help you, but he's not around at the moment, is he? <laughs> I love it on two levels, this painting. And I, you know, I, I'm not a pre-Raphaelite man. You know that. We've discussed this. I'm mm. against the pre-Raphaelites in most instances. But I do think Holman Hunt is the most interesting of them. Um, and uh, I love this painting through and because of its extraordinary beautiful treatment of nature mm. so as you say the sheep are beautifully painted the brambles are beautifully painted i mean there's a couple of butterflies in there it's a red admiral i think mm. you know it's absolutely beautifully painted the sea is beautifully painted there's this wonderful truth to nature which is what holman hunt learned from that great art critic whom i know you like <laughs> so much john ruskin <laughs> so it's got all that in it and I think what's interesting, do you know the story of this painting? Do you know how Holman Hunt came to paint it? Well, it, it grew out of, a, of an earlier picture he painted called uh, The Hireling Shepherd, is that right? That's right, yeah. So tell us about that, Bendor. Well, The Hireling Shepherd is in the Manchester Art Gallery, and it has some sheep in the background. Uh, the subject is a shepherd who is courting a local girl. It looks like he, he would like to have his wicked way with her. And in the background, the sheep are in danger of being lost because, um, as we all know from John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15, the hired shepherd, the hired hand, is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Now, at the time Holman Hunt was painting this picture and the subsequent picture, which we are now discussing, which is in the Tate Gallery, um, there were all sorts of uh, rather fractious disputes going on in the Church of England in Britain. And Hunt fretted that while the church was arguing amongst itself, the people of Britain uh, would be like the, the sheep left without a shepherd. And as we see in the painting at Tate, uh, would be a danger of falling off the cliff through lack of moral guidance. Mm. That's absolutely right. And isn't that fascinating? I think that is such an interesting story. So you've got two pictures, basically, which at the moment are completely separate. One's in Manchester, the City Art Gallery, the other's at the Tate. Mm -hmm. And yet they're, they're, as it were, joined across the ages by this ongoing storyline. So in the Manchester picture, you see the shepherd chatting up the girl and ignoring the sheep, therefore leaving them free to have their tragedy. And in the Tate picture, you see the sheep about to fall over the edge of the cliff. It's a sort of conceptual joining. And I think that's really interesting. And there's another aspect to this, which is that when it was painted in 1852, you know, there's all this stuff going on in France with Napoleon III, wasn't there, who's got very bellicose and there was talk of invading Britain. And of course, this the actual coastline that we see in the Holman Hunt is near Hastings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the most famous invasion of Britain was the Battle of Hastings uh -huh. when William the Conqueror came over. And so I think the another, as it were, symbolic meaning hidden underneath his picture is a warning to watch your coastline, you know, our English coasts, yeah. because you never know when the French could be popping up on the horizon. Uh -huh. so there's a lot going on here, and, and it emphasizes my recurring point that, that sheep can be really, really symbolic. And I love this painting, and uh, I wish it was on show all the time at uh, Tate Britain, which uh, sadly it isn't. But anyway, something that is on show all the time is a picture that is our number one. Um, and I think for once, Sendor, we're in total agreement here. If you're talking about painting sheep, if you're talking about the greatest sheep ever painted, if you're talking about the most important artwork featuring a sheep, 
then there is only one place to go to, and that is to Ghent uh, in Belgium, in Old Flanders, where you head for the church and you go and look at Van Eyck's masterpiece, the altarpiece of the mystic ram. Don't you, Bendor? Uh, hmm. Must go and do it. It's on our, put it on our list, Weldy. Never been. Isn't that shameful? You've never been? I've never been. I'm going to catch a train up to Scotland and I'm going to spank your bottom, Bendor. <laughs> How can you not have seen the great altarpiece of the mystic lamb? I mean, it's, it's a museum in a painting. It's everything. It's absolutely everything. And of course, they were cleaning it last year, weren't they? Uh, well, they've had to be cleaning it for, for many years, but the results were unveiled last year. Sorry, I interrupted you while you were about to tell us why you nevertheless know it's so important. Oh, well, this is the centrepiece of, uh, well, should we call it the greatest altarpiece ever painted? I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one of the most extraordinary things about Van Eyck, isn't it? An artist born in the 1300s, who by the 1430s was, <laughs> was achieving some of the, the greatest heights that had never been surpassed in the history of Western art. I mean, that, that alone is extraordinary. And this, this must be his um, undoubted masterpiece. And here is the sheep, uh, the star of the show, which is on an altar, uh, surrounded by the various panels of this altarpiece, um, less, of course, the one that was half-inched in the 1930s. And it is a radiant sheep. There's all sorts of uh, mystical light and rays coming from it. And it is uh, bleeding uh, the blood of Christ into a holy chalice. Is that the right word? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really, I need your Catholic help here, uh, Waldi, to, to get all the terminology right. But anyway, the point is that this uh, sheep is the star of the show and it is exquisitely painted except, I think, for the head. Because, as listeners might know, during the restoration of the altarpiece, which has been going on for the last few years, um, they removed the, the face that people would have seen on this sheep for, what, probably at least 400 years, I think, and maybe even more. And they discovered an earlier, they thought, head of a sheep underneath it, which looks quite radically different, doesn't it? It does. Um, but it's the right thing to do. It looks much better. Do you think? Now, look, I'm going to be arrogant. I know this to be so. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why. You can disagree with me when I've said it, but I'll tell you why. The lamb is meant to represent Jesus Christ, right? He is the saviour. He's given his blood. He comes to die for us, to save us for our original sin and all that. Even though you're a Presbyterian, you know what about that. <laughs> so it's meant to be an embodiment, a personification of Jesus. Now, the old face looked like a sheep. It looked as if someone had painted it over to make it look more like an animal from the fields. When they removed that, that oil paint, they had a, a sort of rather strange face that had a big stare to it. And what you have to remember is that it's tiny. It's a, it, you know, this is a massive altarpiece and it's got all these panels in it. And the sheep forms a tiny bit of the middle, although it's the center of the action, and it's absolutely the center of the picture. It is only tiny. And when you see it blown up, you know, this is what people did when the restoration was done. They put it on the front pages of newspapers. And it did look silly because yeah. it's never meant to be, you know, a full-size portrait of a sheep's head. Oh, right. Okay. But when, when you see it in situ, what it is, it, it's like the center of the picture. It's like a very small thing mm -hmm. which manages somehow to look as if all the action is heading towards it. It's like a sort of black hole. It's sucking the whole picture towards it. And it does that by looking at you very directly and by having these kind of radiating things coming out of around the face. So the face is the centre of it all. You know, you don't want an ordinary looking sheep at the centre of all that. You need something that engages you with a stare. 
So it's got this stare, which is ever so slightly anthropomorphic, I admit, but it makes it work as an artwork now. It has given the picture back its centre. That's what's happened. And, that it, and it's much better for it. Uh, I see. I can see how it would be slightly less distracting um, at the appropriate uh, smaller scale. I, I just find it an unusual conservation decision because uh, normally conservators um, and art historians have, in recent years anyway, have tended to value the history of a painting. Um, even if we are absolutely certain of what the original painting looked like. And the two things that occur to me here. First of all, in terms of the history of the painting, this sheep, as far as I could discern from the technical analysis that was published around it, it's been there for centuries. And I think it was a brave call to say, well, now we must go back to what we think was the original. And then the second point is, I don't know that we can be absolutely sure that this was not a change made by Van Eyck or his brother. This this was a painting that was worked on by the two of them and perhaps a number of assistants. There's a marvellous website, which we should put a link to on zczfilms.com, which is the, the whole altarpiece in a gigapixel high resolution. And you can zoom in all over the place and it's absolutely fascinating. And you can see when you do that, that Van Eyck, he was, he was the king of the pentiment. And there's all sorts of little changes. So he'll put in a house and then he'll paint another window on top of it or a different type of architecture. And you can see all these changes emerging through. And I think, as I say, it was very brave of the conservators. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they did it absolutely wrong. I'm just saying it was a bold thing to do, uh, to decide that they were absolutely sure that the face which we now see was definitely the one which Van Eyck intended us to see. You can also on this website see uh, the painting in infrared, which is amazing to see infrared in high resolution and if you zoom in on the sheep you can see that the the legs were in different places the feet have been moved up and down and even if you look at the head Wildy, there is an even more anthropomorphic eye underneath the one that we see painted on now it, in fact the eye was drawn even bigger so it, it strikes me that it could have been a process where van eyck started out thinking oh, this looks a little bit um, humanoid. Perhaps we should go a slightly more sheep-like direction. Nope, not nope. a chance. Nope. Sorry, okay. really not, not a chance. No, <laughs> um, I, I don't think there is any chance on earth that Van Eyck would have wished his embodiment of Jesus Christ on the altar to look like a sheep. And I'll tell you why I know that. Above the sheep in the next scene, there is God as Jesus sitting there. And in this painting, which is full of astonishing realism, I mean, that's what makes Van Eyck so special. You know, mm -hmm. people have counted 150 different types of flower or something yeah. in this field he's standing in. Everything is so realistic and glorious, and it's the wonder of oil paints. The one thing that looks unreal is God. You know, there is a figure of God who's standing there in like a sort of Egyptian sculpture, absolutely stiff, with this incredibly forward-looking face, very much an artificial sense of idol about him. Uh -huh. And it's a God that you can believe is not human. It's a God that's godly. And if you go straight down from there to the sheep, you've got that same forward-looking thing. Right. And I think just in the basic religiosity of it, if you're Van Eyck back in the beginning of the 15th century, you know, your idea of divinity is not going to allow you to paint Jesus Christ looking like a sheep. It wouldn't have happened. And so, although it's a lovely idea, I can feel your farmer roots showing here, and I wish I could agree with you because we're such good friends, but I genuinely think that's an impossibility. It's one of those fusses that should never have been made. It's a fantastic restoration. They've gone back to the original wherever they can. 
it's frankly thrilling Let, let's let's just make a date to go back there when all this is over uh, yeah. when, when covid time is over bendel me and you in front of van dyke's altarpiece of the mystic lamb in ghent honestly you will love it or go and see the alien sheep marvelous Okay, it's a date. Now, away from these problematic territories, let's move on to something a little bit more straightforward and certainly more up your path, perhaps, and certainly up my path as well, because we're going to that bit of the show where we get to choose a masterpiece from the whole of art that we would like to have hanging on our wall because we can have anything at all, absolutely anything. On the Wall Yes, it's on the wall. It's the fun time on the podcast where we uh, hopefully give a special pleasure to our two listeners in America, one in Chicago, one in Ohio. I hope you're listening out there, folks. Bender, what have you got for them? Oh, this is a painting, really, I should have chosen for my lockdown uh, gallery some months ago. It is The Tribuna by Johann Zoffany. And actually, it's in the Royal Collection. So we're back at the Royal Collection again. Now, this is a painting of the Star Room in the Uffizi Gallery, in which the Medicis used to hang the gems of their collection. And we can see on the walls here marvellous paintings by Rubens, Holbein and Raphael, and all sorts of classical sculptures as well. The painting was commissioned by uh, King George III and Queen Charlotte in 1772. Zoffany said he was off to Florence, and would they like a painting? And they said, yes, please, uh, show us what the Medicis have in their, their gallery, and we can compare it to ours. Wouldn't that be lovely? And he, he said, all right, that'll be 300 quid, uh, quite a lot of money. But he took the money and off he went. And uh, over the following years, he painted this extraordinary painting. And the, the attention to detail in some of the pictures that we can see hanging on the wall is, is really breathtaking. You can play, test your connoisseurship with it, really, because you can almost discern the various techniques of the Rubens painting is painted as sort of Rubensian technique and, and so on and so forth with the Holbein and the Raphael. But then as often he took his time with this painting and he took a, a wrong turn, it has to be said, at least from uh, the Royal Collection's eyes, he decided to put a number of people in it. And actually he put quite a lot of people in it because he, he hit upon the wizard wheeze, Waldy, of charging English uh, grand tourists who happened to be in Florence at the time for the opportunity to star in this painting, which was going to be a, a gem of the British Royal Collection. A, a little bit like when a when a movie producer runs out of money and they, you know, they offer the people to cough up a chance to be a, an extra or a small part in a movie. And in this painting, we see a whole uh, cast of people that the, the king and queen thought were rather disreputable. And they're all up to no good because, of course, often he um, was a rather humorous fellow and had a sharp eye for, for wit and jokes in paintings. Uh, one of the characters he put in, which he shouldn't have done, I think, uh, was an artist, a fellow artist called Thomas Patch. Now, if you look bottom right, he is the person dressed in black and he's holding with one hand. Can you see uh, Titian's famous painting, The Venus Uvo Urbino? Uh, but with his finger, he is pointing instead to the, uh, the bare buttocks of the Roman classical sculpture of the Restless. And this is an allusion to the fact that Thomas Patch had been uh, expelled from Rome some years earlier for homosexuality. And so he's uh, eschewing the attractions of Titian's Venus for, for other attractions. Um, so when the painting uh, finally got back to Britain, uh, the king and queen were absolutely horrified by this thing. And uh, the king said uh, that the queen would not suffer to have it in her apartments. 
So it's a real feast for the eyes. It's full of stories, full of humours, full of great art, and I absolutely love it. Mm, it's certainly busy. Um, I mean, you'd have you'd have a lot of uh, fun recognising everything in here, wouldn't you? I mean, so you've got this gallery which is packed, I mean, packed with masterpieces by famous painters, um, and I can recognise a few of them. As you say, the Venus of Urbino. We talked about this last podcast, didn't we, with the Manet's Olympia up at the top. There's a picture by Rainey, Cleopatra. That's right. Can you see that? Yeah, that, I saw that the other day. It's in the Royal Collection, and or at least a version of it is, and it's mm -hmm. currently hanging in the Queen's Gallery. There's Raphael's there, there's all sorts, and all that sculpture, as you say. Um, I didn't know the story about the wrestlers. Um, that's interesting. I know that on the right of the picture, there's a Venus, standing Venus. That's the Medici Venus, isn't it? The most famous Venus in the whole of antiquity. And all the people admiring the, the Medici Venus are staring straight at her buttocks too. They are, they yeah. are. I mean, it's one of those pictures which, you know, you could do a Christmas quiz. You could blank out all the paintings on the wall and get people to guess what they are and have a prize or something like that. It's a lot of fun. See, I've been, you've been to the Tribuna, right? You know this gallery in the Uffizi, don't you? I have made a programme in there, although we weren't, I wasn't allowed on there. I wasn't allowed actually in the room itself. I had to perch over the door frame because apparently the, the, well, they told us at least that the floor is too precious and it wouldn't take my weight. Although I was slightly dismayed to see more recently that Mary Beard, had been allowed to wander around when she was making her own programme there. So I think Mary, more important than me. Bendor, um, have you made what, a can, I, what can I say? I have, and, <laughs> and um, even, even the, I suppose it's probably because I'm lighter than you. They did allow me to, uh, to walk on the floor, which is actually covered up in the Zophany, isn't it? You can't really see the floor. Um, but yes, I mean, what's perhaps missing from this picture is a sense of what an extraordinary room it is because it is the most important room in the Uffizi, the Tribuna. It's a wonderful Renaissance room with this gorgeous marble floor, Pietra Dura floor, and which I think is meant to represent a garden or something, but it is absolutely stunning. And when I went to see it, and when I filmed it, it was full of bronzinos. There were all those bronzino portraits of um, the Medici. So it was Cosimo I, etc. And it was very dark and moody and a completely different sort of space from the one here. Mm. And I think the other thing about it is that in real life, it's quite a small room. It doesn't feel huge, yeah. but the, the Zoffany makes it much, much bigger, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think you had to, to get all the paintings in. <laughs> yes. Um... Shall we point out that it's actually octagonal, this space? Uh, okay, yes. And what okay. do we see? We only see three sides of his offer, don't we? Yeah. yeah, but it is octagonal, the gallery. Again, I remember from the time I filmed in it, it was rather beautiful because, you know, the number eight is special in Renaissance religious thinking. It's a number that equates to a sacred geometry linking the earth and the sky and all that. Um, well, it does, it does. And um, so there's a lot of columns in art, a lot of fonts, a lot of Byzantine churches based on on the octagon. It, it became a kind of sacred shape. And I think the fact that the tribuna in Florence, in the Uffizi, was an octagon, was part of that. And so, yeah, just an interesting space, fabulous picture. Hours of fun trying to uh, work out what all the pictures are. So that's a really good choice, you know, because if there is a more serious lockdown and we head for a sort of tier five or tier six or tier seven, God mm. knows what's ahead of us, um, <laughs> this would be the picture you want, wouldn't it? Because it would keep mm. you endlessly interested. But speaking of tier sevens and indeed tier eights and tier nines, um, I've gone for something incredibly tearful. I've gone for Roger van der Weyden's Descent from the Cross. I should have gone for this a long time ago because it is quite frankly one of my favorite pictures and quite possibly i think 
the greatest religious picture ever painted. It's certainly right up there. Yeah. It hangs, as you know, in the Prado, in a wonderful space, largely to itself. And it's, we just talked about Van Eyck a minute ago and the altarpiece of the Mystic Lamb. This is Flemish realism taken a couple of steps further. And what it is, it's Christ being taken down from the cross and gathered around him are the various mourners who were there at the time. So the, his mother, the Virgin Mary, is slumped on the ground. John the Evangelist in his red robe, he's there. Mary Magdalene, my era, she's there on the far right. Other Marys of Jesus's circle, they're there. Nicodemus is there. Joseph of Arimathea is there. And all these characters look incredibly real. I mean, this is the thing that, that Roger van der Weyden brought to Flemish art, this astonishing sense of reality. And where it is concentrated, where it becomes something miraculous is in the painting of tears. Now, no one ever has painted tears like Roger van der Weyden. Somebody counted a hundred different types of tear in this picture. You know, every face has these amazingly, brilliantly painted droplets pouring down it. And it can't help but sort of push you into moods of, of sadness and and empathy with the terrible fate of, of Jesus as he's being brought down from the cross. So it's just, it's an astonishing picture. It takes your breath away. I mean, I, I defy anybody looking at this not to be overwhelmed. I'm sure you were, Ben Dorris. It's just a masterpiece, isn't it? This is a masterpiece even I have seen in the flesh. Um, you're, you're quite right, I think, to say it's one of the, the greatest such subjects ever painted. Um, and I said this earlier, but it's I've always thought it's terribly unfair actually we call artists like Van Eyck and Van der Weyden uh, the Flemish primitives uh, because straight out of the box in back in the 1430s they were painting these extraordinary paintings which have very rarely been surpassed um, I think art history in calling them the Flemish primitives has, has done them an injustice um, this is we've chosen two real highlights this week Maldi I can see that this one is going to to hang in front of your bed this is this is a bedroom painting isn't it this is stir you every morning and and stir you at night it's quite an extraordinary thing i was reading in the in the history of it though um as to how it ended up in the prado i'm not sure if this is right but it said that in 1548 uh, it was swapped for an organ hmm. and that's that's how it ended up in the habsburg collection that's the most extraordinary uh <laughs> swap provenance I don't know about that. No, um, the only extraordinary, well, I think it's extraordinary. The only extraordinary thing I know about it is that so it was commissioned by the Crossbowmen's Guild in, in the town of Leuven or Leuven in Belgium. Um, and because Van der Weyden wanted to please the Crossbowmen, Jesus's pose with the arms outstretched and his body hanging down is based on a crossbow. So he's adopted the pose of a crossbow. And if you look in the corners of the picture, so all these figures are arranged within a, an illusionistic niche. So mm. they're, they're almost sculptural in, in the way they sit in this space. Uh, and in the corners are these Gothic details. And amongst the Gothic details are more crossbows. So there are these hidden crossbows in here. In fact, find the crossbow is a great way to look at this picture. Look, this is a painting I could go on and on about. I mean, it, it moves me in ways that I can't, um, I can't begin to express. But it's had one very unfortunate consequence, really unfortunate consequence, because um, during the last lockdown, Bendor, one of the things I did was to um, reform our old band, the Singing Art Critics, and we recorded some special lockdown music on the Isolation EP. And one of the bits of music we recorded 
was in fact devoted to Roger van der Weyden. It was a it was a challenge, really. I mean, can anybody write a pop song about Roger van der Weyden? The it, it, is didn't, no. <laughs> it didn't seem possible. It didn't <laughs> seem possible. And to prove it, uh, we had a go. So um, who are your fellow bandmates? Uh, Brian Sewell on bass. We've got uh, Susan Sontag on um, vocals and backing vocals. Um, there's Robert Hughes. Uh, he's on backing vocals. Winkelmann on lead guitar. It's an extraordinary array of talent. John Ruskin on drums. John Ruskin is on drums. How did you know that? You recognise the beat, right? I'm going to say goodbye. And from you, Bendor, it's going to be... Cheerio. And in the meantime, all you unfortunates out there, here it is. Here is Roger van der Weyden by the Singing Art Critics. Roger, Roger, and divider. 